Hello, and welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. And I'm Lydia Harrington. Today, our guest is Nicholas Kontovas, a graduate student at Indiana University whose research uh, focuses on linguistics. Nico, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. We haven't had too many podcasts on linguistics, but the ones that we have done have had a historical component, and today's will have a historical component because we're going to be talking about a historical linguistic phenomenon called Lubunja, Mm -hmm. which is not a dialect of Turkish, but in fact a kind of slang. Why don't you explain a little bit what Lubunja is and what it means when you say slang in sort of linguistic terminology? Sure. Uh, Well, Lubunja is, like you said, a slang variety. And what that means is that it's... Uh, It's hard, actually, to find a singular definition for slang, but let's say in this context, it's sort of a jargon in so much it's used by people of a particular trade or group of trades, and it's also a a language variety that's associated uh, with a particular social group, or let's say social phenomenon, and the people who sort of uh, associate themselves with it. Uh, Whereas a dialect, generally, in sort of classical linguistic terminology, is a variety of a language that is spoken as the default by a group of people who are usually geographically uh, held together as opposed to held together by social space, right? So uh, held together by physical space as opposed to social space. And I guess we'll get to the bottom of what exactly that means as we start to describe Lubunja. So first of all, I want you to tell us about who and where and since when Lubunja has been used. Sure. Well, that's a bit of the topic of uh, my thesis upon which this podcast is based. Lubunja comes from uh, probably uh, the Romanes. And when I say Romanes, uh, some people say Romani, uh, Gypsy, I might say Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes, but I'm referring to the language here. Uh, It comes from the Romanes word Lubni, uh, which means uh, a female prostitute. And uh, Lubunya uh, is its Turkish slang verm, uh, form, rather. Uh, and instead of saying Lubunyaja, which is a mouthful, people just shortened it to Lubunja. Uh, and what it is, it's the slang variety used by people who bear the moniker Lubunya. That is to say, uh, usually effeminate gay males, as self-identified, uh, identified, and uh, trans females, what we would call sort of in the in the gender studies circle, trans females. We don't see the use of the term lubunja even in the literature from the 1980s, which uses the slang variety that we now know as lubunja extensively. We have the word lubunya or lubusha or various forms of it, but we don't have the slang variety being reified like that and and labeled as lubunja. So it seems to have come around sometime... Uh, after the 1980s, when was the sort of last heyday of, of Lubunja as we know it now. Uh, but, uh, as the, the thesis tries to show at least, it's got both its sort of social roots and some of its linguistic roots in periods uh, spanning the sort of century and a half before that, two centuries before that. And is this a slang used only in Istanbul? Is that what we're talking about here? Or is this used, you know... In a specific geographic region. Uh, it seems like it used to be used primarily in Istanbul. The composition is such that it reflects almost exactly uh, the demographic makeup of a particular set of streets in Beyoğlu and uh, Lower Şişli uh, towards the end of the Ottoman Empire and the beginning of the Turkish Republic. So it's pretty fascinating that you can sort of do a little linguistic archaeology, pick apart the the sort of etymological breakdown of Lubunja's exists today and and see, you know, with with a, a pretty 
pinpoint degree of accuracy probably where it came from. Uh, however, nowadays, you will have it spoken by especially uh, the, the trans community and especially uh, members of the trans community who are engaged in sex work as far away as, as Diyarbakir. Um, I've got a friend who was doing work there uh, unrelated to language but who had to pick up a few choice words of Lubunja mm -hmm. in order to understand what her field informants were calling her. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, no, so it's it's gone far afield but it seems like its birthplace, its primary birthplace was probably Istanbul. So, Let's talk about that social setting, the social milieu that gave rise to this slang. In order to figure it out, because obviously not a lot of people are writing about this phenomenon as a phenomenon before the 1980s, what I had to do was try and figure out if there were elements of the lexicon of Lubunja, that is to say the, the set of words that are specific to Lubunja that could only have come from a particular era in time. We now know, for example, that the Greek-speaking community in Istanbul is much smaller than it was even 50 years ago. Yeah. Right. Uh, the Armenian community here hasn't always spoken, uh, doesn't really speak much Armenian now, uh, and it's only spoken Armenian heavily in certain places throughout the city, right? Certain Armenian communities throughout the city. Uh, one of the big uh, sort of... Uh, what do we call litmus tests or yardsticks or various other measuring devices that we use to make metaphors in academia uh -huh. um, for when at least part of Lubunja came about. Because, of course, since it's a slang variety, it doesn't have to have all come about at the same time. Think yeah. about in English. We use the word cool, and we've been using it since, I think, the, somebody said the 1600s it's been used. And it was, I don't know. I'm making things up now. But it's been used for a really long time, and we still use it. Whereas other things, for example, when I was a kid, if something was neat, we said mint. Right, which, yeah. I, which I don't think exists anymore. Uh, so part of the Lubunja lexicon has to come from at least uh, 50 years ago, uh, maybe 60. And why does it have to come from that period? Well, because a huge portion of the lexicon that's specific to Lubunja comes from Romanes, comes from Gypsy. And uh, while varieties of Romanes still exist in other parts of Turkey, in Izmir, there's a, a large community, Sepecides, Sepecideskere, and their language they still speak. But in Istanbul, even the oldest members of the Gypsy community, if they're from Istanbul, actually don't speak Romanes. They might know a few words here and there, but not really enough to have contributed the amount of Romanes that exists in the Labunja sort of word inventory. So you're saying because there's all these lexical inputs, and maybe we'll get some examples in just a second sure. from... Uh, gypsy from Armenian from Greek that by definition the slang must date to a time period in which those uh, groups were a big demographic part of the It doesn't city. have to, right? It doesn't have to, but it's much more likely, let's put it that way. Um, there's not a lot of impetus for members of a majority group like Turks, even if they're a social minority, right? To learn in any extensive way the language of an ethno-linguistic minority. Right. There, there's not a lot of social impetus, so it usually doesn't happen, right? There has to have been at least a, a, a community large enough uh, for them to sort of embed themselves in it or associate themselves with it in any meaningful way so as to pick up the language. Uh, there's also the fact that if we look at these communities, because these aren't communities that have only existed in the past, they exist now in some way, shape, or form. If we look at those communities now, the Greek community, the Armenian community, the Gypsy community, they don't really seem to have much of a connection with the community that uses Lubunja. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the 
we mentioned the historical linguistics behind, you know, sort of figuring out where this comes from, but it's a slang. And as you mentioned, a slang develops within a sort of close knit community and, and engaged in a very specific uh, profession or, you know, social uh, habits. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that as well? Sure. Well, when I was looking at sort of historical uh, queer, and of course, queer is not a, a transhistorical term. We use it now as a blanket. Right. Sort of. um, but when I look at slang varieties that have been used by demographics, which nowadays might use lubunja, so what we would think of as gay men or trans women, right? Uh, strangely enough, while there isn't a lot of detailed documentation of their language, there is some, by the way, uh, before, you know, before even 1980, right, before the Republican period, there are uh, things called, for example, delaknames, right, uh, masseuse books and things like that, books that are written usually by big fans, usually wealthy fans, patrons of hammams, right, who are writing about the sexual practices that happen inside. Of course, hammams are gender divided. It's same-sex practices, right? Uh, so by looking at these, uh, especially there's one that uh, Delacname did Gouchard, uh, written by a guy whose moniker is great, Delibradash. The exact date is not entirely certain, but it probably comes from uh, the late 16th century, uh, pretty early, right? Uh, but he's, uh, that manuscript doesn't still exist. It's been copied and copied and copied, but still. Uh, a full... Uh, sort of modernization of that text exists in, in uh, Murat Bardakcha's book, Osmanlı uh, da Sex, which is a, a really interesting book. So if you look at that, you'll see that, in fact, people who nowadays would use Lubunja actually do have a language variety, which we could consider a slang, that seems to be used among themselves. It's used among themselves so much that when he's, let's say, for example, the example that I gave, Deli Biradar, is writing for a more general audience, he has to explain what these terms mean. A handful of them, not a lot, but a handful of them are still used nowadays with the same meaning with slightly different meanings. But for the most part, it's a different slang variety in terms of its composition and where exactly it's used, right? Hamams as opposed to sort of the street sex trade, things like that. Uh, but it's still there. It's still a slang variety that's used mostly among uh, gay men. So it exists, you know, a slang variety exists, but it doesn't look like the Lubunja that we have. Okay, what changes? Right? It, this is pretty consistent, actually. The makeup is very Turkish. It's a lot of wordplay. You'll have a lot of words derived from, like any other Ottoman word, either Turkic roots or Arabic roots or Persian roots that wouldn't be immediately recognizable to the uninitiated in the forms that they're used at, sort of in, in the, the sources that we have. But... Uh, they are definitely standard Arabic, Persian, Turkic, Ottoman forms, right? A uh, little later on, 17th century, 18th century, we get a smattering of Armenian terms. We also get a chunk of words that we just can't figure out where they come from. They just don't look like any language to us. Maybe they come from wordplay. Maybe they're complete, you know, utter nonsense. Maybe they were made to mimic some language. Right, but not For actually. example, like, what do we have? Uh, well, this is from a little bit of a later period. Uh, Babilov, uh, which uh, a fart, uh, uh, sometimes a shit, but mostly, Kakiz is mostly shitting, okay. but uh, a fart usually. Um, and it doesn't seem to come from any place, uh, but it might be, it's one of a handful of words that has this sort of off thing. 
Sirkov is another one. Uh, although that one has a good, uh, probably good Russian etymology. It comes from the Russian word for church. Babilov doesn't actually, it isn't a Russian word or a Bulgarian word or any other Slavic word that has this off ending, right? It looks like it was probably just meant to mimic that. And there's a really great sort of subset of words that have os or oz or osh at the end, which are clearly made to mimic different time periods of Greek, right? As it's spoken in Istanbul or the various other places where mm-hmm. uh, those parts of the Labunja lexicon are being formed. Uh Right. So, okay. So we have up until uh, the Republican period where we've got these slang varieties used by gay men, but we don't have a composition that looks like modern Lubunja. So when does it go from being this predominantly Ottoman wordplay sort of phenomenon, right? Borrowing from Mm -hmm. Arabic and Persian and Turkic, but also with a couple of made-up words and things like that, to drawing most of its special vocabulary from Romanes and from the other Gaida Muslim minority languages and a little bit from Arabic. And unfortunately, we don't actually have the transitional period, right? We have... uh, corresponding to the sort of reassertion of the caliphate, corresponding to a surge in uh, sort of legislation against sexual promiscuity. There's a really great passage. Uh, Jevdet Pasha is bragging to the sultan about how he eliminated the practice of soliciting boys for sex uh, among cabinet members, right? Uh, and uh, I think it was uh, Akif Poroy in his book, Turkiye de Jin Selik, who argues that uh, it was probably... Partially in response to, well, okay. general argument is that it's a response uh, to European powers viewing the Ottoman Empire as decadent, right? So it's decadent right. because you have these dancing boys and you can go to hammam and all of the members of parliament or you know, government are, uh, are soliciting young boys for sex. So part of it is a response to try and clean that up in the eyes right, of... Right, the late Ottoman period, early you know, early 20th century, up up to the early 20th century, is kind of like a Victorian era for the exactly. Ottomans as well, where you have this, all these sorts of uh, legislation involving sexual norms and family, etc. Exactly. Um, but therein lies a key to probably what brought the groups that contributed the elements of the Labunja lexicon together in such a way that they could produce Labunja, right? Because beforehand, you had most of the sort of male-on-male sex trade, right? Or the the trans-female also in some cases. We don't have that moniker earlier, so it's hard to tell. Uh, Sex trade going on in the context of hammams. Going on in a slightly, slightly, in fact, uh, court-sponsored arena, right? We have people who are members of government, who are members of court, who are visiting these places and writing books about it. Not just talking about it, but writing books about it, painting miniatures about it. and you don't have that anymore. So the question is, well, the, the, the gay men who are engaging in this and the, and the trans women in, in some cases, I'm sure, are not going away. Uh, neither is the practice of, of male prostitution, I'm sure. So what happens to them? Right? They go underground, I guess. Exactly. They go underground. And, and it's the same underground uh, that a portion of the gay male population, especially the trans female population, exists today. So geographically, it's some of the same locations, uh, it turns out. Uh, looking at old newspaper clippings and things like that. But it's also the same, uh, in in some ways, the same sort of social space. There used to be this social space of sort of court sponsorship, of of prestige, of male beauty. And when that's gone, it's a social space in which it is much harder to survive. You have to have social mechanisms, a habitus for distinguishing yourself as a discrete group, 
juxtaposed to the majority, right? You have to have a way of, for example, communicating among yourselves in public so that you're not understood using Turkish and Persian and Arabic words as they were used, but slightly differently. The odds of somebody guessing what you're saying is pretty higher, right? So that's one impetus. But another big impetus is the fact that at the same time that the male sex trade is being driven underground, uh, the socioeconomic status of Gaira Muslim minorities, especially in certain parts of Istanbul, especially, like I said, in Beolu and, and Lower Shishte, uh, is also decreasing. Right, yeah. Right? Um, and so what it seems to be is that we now have uh, gay males engaged in the sex trade and trans females engaged in the sex trade. We have now a circumstance in which those individuals are coming into both physical and uh, social socially salient contact with members of guided Muslim communities with which they would not have uh, associated in any particularly in-depth way before. Because they're also marginal, exactly. marginalized. Exactly. And this is why, of course, when you look at the sort of non-Turkish element of the Lubunja lexicon, the vast majority of it is Romanes, right, is gypsy. You've got a lot of terms that are Turkish, but somehow twisted in some way, convoluted in some way. Uh, but you've also got a ton of words from Romanes. And it's a language that non-gypsies just do not, gaje, just do not learn historically. Yeah, you've got some sort of examples, right? And you've got really interesting, what we call para-Romani varieties, right? Uh, varieties of languages, German, Greek, English, even there's an English para an Anglo-Romani, yeah. uh, which include lots of, of Romanes, right? Uh, but those are usually gypsy communities or mixed gypsy, non-gypsy communities uh, where you've got uh, some sort of underground activity, uh, be it illicit uh, sort of black market trade or uh, gambling or things like that involved, right? A hotvelsch, the German thieves. Uh, it's like uses a lot of gypsies, but of course there are a lot of gypsies also involved in it. There do not ever seem to have been a lot of gypsies involved, uh, sort of that were also members of the gay. Uh, and, and trans community, although maybe some. That's an area that still needs to be explored. A lot of former uh, Kyuchek dancing boys, when the practice was driven sort of really underground, because, you know, they took the, the prohibitions a bit lightly at some points. But uh, there's a, a, a small amount of literature done on what happened to them after they were out of a job. Because, of course, after you get it past a certain age, you can't work in it anyway. But once the entire profession is abolished, it's not like you can go into a, you can become a Kyuchek trainer right uh anymore your only option a lot of them actually became what we would call trans women and continued on the sex trade mm -hmm. and we know that the the ethnic makeup of kuchek even in the late on empire was was radically diverse right uh, just really really diverse uh so it could be that a number of gypsy individuals uh contributed to the slang as parts of the sort of full members of the community uh but it's so much and so widespread uh that that it isn't likely the case. Gypsies are still a pretty small minority. Uh, there's also the fact that there seems to be a really high degree of semantic change, right? Change of the meaning of the original words, right? The original gypsy words, for example. Uh, kelav uh, is a Lubunja word, which in gypsy, kelav, kelava means I dance. But in Lubunja, it means a prostitute, right? So we can imagine a situation in which some sort of lack of full knowledge of the implications of this word leads to yeah. that sort of dramatic semantic change. Uh, but it's probably not speakers of, of gypsy who are initiating and, and propagating that change, right? So, um, so I was wondering, 
among different communities who would use this language, do cis women use it in addition to cis men and um, trans women? Okay, that's a really good question. Uh, traditionally, it seems like the people who would use what we call lubunja, the one specifically, you know, very, got a lot of words, gay, uh, sex, sort of acts and, and positions and terms and things like that, uh, for obvious reasons, was not used uh, in any sort of way, shape, or form by uh, cis women in any substantial way. Maybe some of them might have picked it up. Madams, for example, maybe. Who knows? Although most uh, trans women are, are, seem to be free agents. Um, but trans women who engage in sex work seem to be free agents uh, here. But nowadays, you'll actually see some cis women... Uh, both lesbians and straight, uh, who pick up lubunja as a sort of conscious badge of radical queer identity, right? So in university, LGBT groups, right? Kaos Gele in Ankara, the LGBT sort of advocacy rights group, things like that, uh, had at one point lubunja courses run by a, a, a guy uh, who used to be here, uh, right? So anybody can sign up for those, right? It's it's making Lubunja available in a way that it never really was available. In addition to all of that, there's no single Lubunja dictionary, but there is on the web communities, one or two communities of people who share Lubunja, who who argue about whether this term means that or means this. Even in my own fieldwork, you come across people who they'll debate the meaning of a Lubunja word, right? Now, does this happen because now the whole community is much more visible? Right, so there's less of a need for a very cohesive secretive slang variety, probably. But it's also the fact that the people that I'm talking to here, that I talk about, you know, who are arguing about meanings, who are sharing things on the web, who are starting these courses, uh, not just gay men and and trans women, but also cisgendered women, both uh, lesbian and straight, uh, and everything in between. It's because they're from a different class, right? Uh, it's because they learn Lubunja in a different way. They learn it to be a different thing. Mm, yeah. Right? So. Well, l l I want to ask, like, the slang, is it mostly focused on sex? As you said, it's it's most prominent among, you know, sex workers and gay men. I mean, is it, a, is it a sexual, is it essentially a sexual slang or, like, for mostly swear words, scatological stuff? Like, what is it comprised of? Is it... There, uh, there's a really great, and anybody uh, who's interested can always contact me for the, the charts and things like that, but there's a, a great chart of the... We can put it up on the website if you want to. Great, great. Yeah, that would be fine. Uh, so it'll be up on the website. But uh, there's a chart about this, the semantic breakdown of, of contemporary Lubunja, sort of as it's existed from the 80s uh, until now. Uh, and of course, there is an overwhelm. Some of the semantic categories are obviously a little bit fudgy. You know, uh, I wind up putting things like smoking cigarettes and drinking and drugs in in fun as opposed to crime or things like that, you know, because yeah. you know, the, the way that they're used. But uh, a lot of them are used for specific s uh, parts of the body, sexual, uh, semi-sexual, the breasts and things like that as well. Uh, uh, for sex acts for positions. And that's another, it's another good transition into another subsection of the Lubunja uh, vocabulary, which be they sexual or age-related or ethnicity-related, it's obsessed with labeling. Right, so a lot of the Lubunja vocabulary uh, is used to label different types of people. Now, one can imagine a practical application of this. One doesn't know, want to know 
that one is talking about somebody when they're right next to you, right? So you invent a new word for that middle-aged man, right? Or uh, or that that Armenian over there, or things like that, right? You invent a word so that you don't have to use a normal one. Uh, uh, but it's also, interestingly, uh, a way of putting people in their place, right? It's a way of, uh, it's what Bourdieu says, it's a way of, slang is, in part, a way of replicating the mechanisms of s- sort of subjugation, of marginalization within subjugated or marginalized groups, right? It's a way of taking the real queens of the community, right? The real, and I say queens tongue-in-cheek, of course, but it's the, the real adept users of Lubunja, the real the real Lubunyalash, and separating them from people who are less initiated, right? So this this neophyte or this, you know, this... Uh, and it even has a, a large number of sort of semi-disparaging words for the receptive member, uh, the, the receptive partner in anal sex, right? Which is funny, considering a lot of the people who use lubunja are the receptive partner in anal sex very often, right? Uh, so it's interesting that we can see a, a, some sort of shared uh, mores with the sort of general population as regards certain elements of even their own community. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, a lot of it uh, obviously related to sex, sex roles, sex positions, uh, and and sort of the, the, the members, the sexual members. There are also, by the way, tons of Lubunja words which are not sexual, uh, which are, are also random things related to money as well, but also words for to see or to look or the eye or policemen or things like that, things that are not sexual. I'm wondering how new, lu, new words in Lubunja must be constantly coined because it's, it's a small community and, you have, like you said, you have this tendency for labeling and also wordplay. I'm wondering, like, productively... Does, are there actually like morphological endings that Labunja uses to make words, or how how is a new Labunja uh, slang created? How do you make new words in Labunja? Well, there's a really great sort of example of this in a different queer slang variety, gay slang variety, uh, in uh, called Polari, which is uh, an English uh, queer slang variety that was used mostly in London. Uh, in Britain in general, uh, up through the 60s, maybe even the 70s. Uh, and it, it it sort of came to the the limelight, came into the limelight, I think we say, uh, with a radio show, I believe it was in the 60s, uh, called Round the Horn. And it had a skit called Julian and Sandy. And it had these two incredibly, obviously, over-the-top effeminate K uh, characters talking about this sort of straight man who may not be so straight, right? But exactly the way that he used language was. Uh, but it's a great example of the type of thing that happens in Lubunja because you've got these words, right, that are definitely just, they exist. They've been in the slang for decades, for you know, generations, right, of, of those speakers. And everybody, you just have to learn it. And then, But there's also a lot of punning, right? These communities prize the adept manipulation of their own social markers, right? So if you can take a word and somehow lubunify it, right, lubunjify it, or something like that, uh, then you gain social capital in the eyes of your peers. Of course, if it's a good pun, right? Uh, there's a number of ways you can do this in lubunja, right? Some of them are endings. I mentioned uh, the osh ending, which is actually crossed into some other 
uh, segments, or maybe existed, you know, came about at the same time in, in multiple sort of s- smaller segments of the population. Uh, but it, you will, for example, shorten a name and put Osh at the end. So instead of Mehmet, you'd say Memosh. Uh, instead of uh, Ibo or Ibrahim, you'd say Ibosh, things like that. Uh, there are also other endings, Tor or Ter, uh, right? Uh, the f- former probably based on English and then the latter based on, on French. But, uh, you know, the ending that we've got, you know, anything aider, generator, masturbator, whatever. Uh, but in Lubunji, you can actually use this relatively productively as a sort of comic intensifier agentizer. So it turns words into a, a, a person that does something, but it sort of it lends an air of false or comic machismo or things like that. For one great example uh, was, was Ibn Tor, which is uh, taking that Tor at the end uh, and t- attaching it to the word Ibnet, which is a horrible word if it's not used by a member of the community, uh, roughly equivalent to the English faggot, uh, right? But again, been reappropriated, right? And when a person that I know used this, it was really great uh, deployment of, of that, uh, Ibn Tosh, uh, it's to refer to somebody who is obviously uh, eff- an effeminate sort of gay male, uh, and, but who thinks himself... Uh, uh, thinks very highly of himself. Thinks he's hot shit, right? So it's it's clearly playing on also the cultural knowledge of the Terminator movies, right? So you've got this ending tor, tersh, things like that, uh, and you're attaching it to this word that means the sort of the epitome of weak, sort of milk toast, namby pamby, gay maleness uh, to to humorous effect, right? It's it's uh, one of the ways in which Lubunja is still is still growing. Uh, I'm wondering if the larger population outside of the gay community knows about Lubunja, how much they know about it, and if it's in media such as films, dizzies, newspapers, things like that. Right. So it doesn't have a lot of currency. It appears occasionally in films. Uh, a Kutlu Ataman film, Lolo und Bilitikit, I think a German, I think that was him, uh, German-Turkish uh, film, has some in it. For example, it's about... Uh, uh, drag queens and trans uh, women, uh, sex workers, and uh, sort of drag drag queen show actors, things like that, performers. There are a few a scattering of of Lubunja words uh, in Zenne, the movie that just came out, for example. Uh, for the most part, the stuff that's real Lubunja, that's in Lubunja, and no other Turkish slang variety, is pretty is still pretty opaque to most Turks. Uh, however. It's also the case that uh, some of the elements of Lubunja are shared with other, especially Istanbulite, slang varieties, right? So uh, Istanbul, especially during the, the early Republican period, the, the Ottoman period, uh, seems to have been characterized by a lot of jargon, right? You'd have uh, the sort of uh, Middle Ages in Europe and things like that seem to have been a lot of the same thing where, you know, you've got in England when you've got uh, the, the sort of bastard hand, the sort of way of chance to chancellorly script you know and every single profession even within the same small city has a different way of a slightly different way of writing the alphabet right uh in some ways we have evidence to suggest that the late ottoman empire was a lot like that in terms of language use that that you'd have a group of say musicians and they'd all have this special set of words that they use uh there's a really great sort of proto-ethnographic work uh 
uh, a guy who effectively, in the late Ottoman Empire, said, well, you know, I don't think this whole Ottoman culture thing is going to last very long. Looks pretty bleak. So I'm going to go around, and I'm going to try and preserve the culture of all these different typically Ottoman groups. Right? Mm. So he goes to Tekez, right? and he, he records the language that's being used there. Right, uh, he goes to uh, beggars and records the language being used. He's got a, a small section on Kuchek and things like that. Right, so it seems to be that that this was pretty common that you'd have these groups that were sort of defined by profession, these groups of praxis, so we'll call them, uh, and they seem to develop their own slang varieties, a way of speaking or jargon. Uh, now, in Istanbul, it's not so much like that anymore. You know, there's a little bit, but it's the same sort of stuff that you see in the U.S. where you have restaurants speak, for example. You know, kebabchas might use the same sets of words for things. Taxi drivers sometimes have their own jargon. It, like, happens anywhere. Uh, but it's still the case that some Istanbulites, especially real old Istanbulites or people who hang out with them or people who are well-integrated, uh, have picked up on a lot of these words just because they were floating around that underground, right? So a lot of the words that come from Gypsy will be shared by, let's say, uh, musicians, Right or uh. taxi drivers or things like that, right? And some of them make it to the general population through some line in a movie or things like that. So dikiz lemek to see is now, which comes from uh, Romani originally, Romanes originally, uh, dikel dikava, which is I see, dikel uh, dikela is he sees, she sees things. Um, plus is, which is probably a Greek ending, very interesting phenomenon. We don't have to get into here, uh, but people outside of now these subaltern communities pretty much know what that means to eye up to see to uh -huh. uh, things like that so some elements have seeped out and are generally understood but it's really disparate you can't say like you could for polari with julian and sandy you know around the horn that show uh you can't say that it really broke out in the same way uh that polari did so well, in part, it's relatively recent in Turkey that any kind of queer culture is any way involved in the mainstream. And I'm wondering, as that happens, as as queer lifestyles are no longer so underground, what does that do to the slang? That's a very interesting question. So it, we think, okay, Turkey, conservative, hard to be gay, true, especially in a lot of places, uh, even within Istanbul. However, go back to the example of Julian and Sandy. Uh, at the time when it was made in Britain, being gay was still illegal, right? We think it well it must have been more acceptable there and then, right, than it was here. But in actuality, was it, right? There may be, obviously, there's something keeping us from having sort of incredibly effeminate characters maybe in Turkish, let's say, television or film. But look at Zeki Murad, right? I mean, it, well, Bülent is, Tersoyev, is, is the, the, the trans phenomenon here is a little bit different. But look at Zeki Murad, a very effeminate man. Right, who played all of these leading male roles and things like that. So is there a space for it? Yes. Now, is there a space for it as what it is? Right? Or will there be a space for it as what it is? Maybe. What we do know is that so far, with the amount of sort of acceptance that goes on in certain circles in uh, Istanbul, the one key factor that's really changed is a sort of let's put it this way, a visibly gay person, for lack of a better term. Obviously, gay people can look and talk and like anybody, right? But this sort of stereotypically gay, effeminate character, right? The one way in which their life has gotten somewhat better, significantly so, uh, notably so, rather, is economic viability, 
you can get a job now as a somewhat effeminate gay man, right? It's sometimes even a well-paying job, right? If you, just as long as you don't say you're gay, right? Uh, uh, you don't, you know, flaunt uh, a, a same-sex partner, qua same-sex partner around your office, things like that. Uh, you can even have certain members of your professional circle know, right? But flat out tell them and things like that. And even if everybody does know, deep down, it makes it to the grapevine. In some circles in Istanbul now, you can make a living. You don't have to go into prostitution. You don't have to go into these sort of subaltern uh, environments. And what happens to Lubunjo? Well, A, the sort of cryptolectical, cryptolectical element is no longer necessary. You don't have to hide it so much anymore, right? Uh, and B, that's not your primary social circle anymore. You don't have to survive outside the lines of society writ large anymore. You're no longer a subaltern, right? You're an active, participating, economically uh, a viable member, viable both in terms of economic capital and social capital, member of society. So you don't need those markers of alternative identity anymore. Uh, and sure enough, if you look at the latest generation of middle class, upper middle class uh, gays who are being brought up in Istanbul, 18, 20 year olds, things like that. Some people don't even know that Lubunja exists, right? They might use a few words of it, just but, you know, the way that American gay men might use chica or things like that. Or, uh, But uh, they're really not aware of the phenomenon. There was this very small window in which the community was very conscious of it, right? Uh, but and and there still are elements of it now, but not really the sort of educated middle upper middle class Turkish, the people who are uh, viable economically in terms of social capital within their own society. Uh, when they do learn about Lubunja, if they are so inclined. Let's say they're the type of person who would go and join an LGBT group at their university or go to Kaos or to Lamde Istanbul or things like that. Uh, then they usually pick up elements of Lubunja as a badge, right? It's something that they take on and take off. It's something that they use in a very limited setting. It's not so much a part of their everyday vocabulary. It's not so much a part of something that they use to maintain their social world right in the same way that let's say even nowadays uh trans sex workers might i think that's very interesting and uh, i mean we're running out of time here but i mean the way you've described it here lubunja is also you know for social historians of istanbul or of turkey it provides a window as you said onto these like old social worlds these very close-knit professional communities we could call them that yeah are disappearing with like they're the restructuring of the social order. It's a very fascinating uh, window onto that social past. And I appreciate you bringing that to the table today. Thank you for having me. Thank you to you too, Lydia, for setting this up and joining us today on the Thanks Street for Podcast. Having me too. Now, for those who are interested in more about the topic, Nico's going to provide us with a short bibliography, which you can find on our webpage. You can also leave your comments and questions and check out the group activity in our Facebook group. That's all for this installment of the Autumn History Podcast. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, take care.